Jonathan. I'm so honored to be here tonight and to be part of this. I love what you're doing there at Serenity House. And um, I, again, I'm just, I'm grateful. So my name is Pam Landhart. I'm gonna share a little bit of my story today about my experience with our son and our journey on family recovery. And so um, I, just a little bit really quick and I'll talk a little bit more at the end, but I am the director of a nonprofit. We're out of Minnesota, but we operate nationally. It's called Thrive Family Support. And what we do is we um, help families. We're a navigator, a connector to resources. We help kind of coach families to help them find what they need in order to get the support that they need. So whether it's a Facebook support group or an online meeting or, you know, some private coaching or um, a lot. We do a lot of navigation to resources for treatment and we vet a lot of resources for treatment. So um, again, and, and the whole reason I do what I do is because of the journey that I'm, that I've been on. So I'm really excited to share um, today how I chose life. And this is where my recovery begins. So, um, does our insurance cover detox? I think only detox is at the hospital or in Phoenix. I'd have to check. What are you detoxing from? Well, you should check. I will, but from what? I'd rather not talk about it right now, to be honest. Well, I need to know, Jake. I've, know, I've known the whole time and it's okay. Just be honest with me. It makes a difference. You knew. I knew you were using the whole time I was there. Of course I knew. I know you, bud. Heroin. Heroin. A word that would strike fear into any mother's heart. Heroin. So how do we get from this happy-go-lucky energetic, um, full of life little boy um, to a grown man using heroin. Life is a series of moments. And these moments are oftentimes just etched indelibly in our minds. You know, we have moments that we can look back on, moments that we remember as part of our journey. And I have these moments that I wanna share with you today. Moments that were the painful part of our journey, but then moments that led us to where we're at today, which I'm happy to say is a whole family that is in recovery. The first moment, my son was 13 years old and we got a call from his junior high at the time and it said, you have to come and get him. We've found a backpack full of pills. <sighs> surprised, but not surprised really, because we had kind of started to see the signs even a year or two before where he became more and more rebellious and we were finding broken pens in his room. We were finding plates with burn marks on them. We were seeing an empty bed in the middle of the night at times. I remember one time looking outside and um, seeing him in our shed smoking something. 
So we were surprised, but not surprised. And after all, we did have a family history of addiction. Um, I had family members, parents that had been impacted. I had siblings that were, um, that had struggled with substance use. So I knew that it was possible in our family, but I also knew that because I was aware, and I remember this, when we started having kids thinking, we're gonna be the one to break the pattern, right? We had kind of a crazy family, pretty dysfunctional, and we were gonna do better. You know, so we did everything that you can imagine. We checked all of the parenting boxes that I'm sure any of you watching would, would say to yourself, yes, we did the same exact thing. You know, we um, took them camping. We made sure they were in sports. They were all in youth group. Um, you know, we took parenting classes from our church. We did everything possible to make sure that we were better parents than our than our, than our parents. And that isn't an, um, a, a dig to our parents. I mean, I don't want to imply that, you know, my parents didn't love me. They loved me. Um, you know, they loved me, right? But they didn't know what they didn't know. And there were generational trauma and generational addiction. And, you know, that was passed down from my parents to us. And so we really thought that if we parented a certain way, that we would get a, a different result. But here we were, my son's 13 years old and he brought a backpack full of pills to school. So our response at that point was to double down, right? We sought advice and everybody was like, well, you just, you know, you have to be stricter. Actually, we got all the advice and I'm sure some of you have experienced this. You have some people that are telling you on one hand, you're too authoritarian. And then you have other people that are telling you, oh, you're too permissive. You have to force them to do this. You have to make them do this. And, you know, we were trying everything, but I do remember, you know, my husband would scoop him up and take him out to the wilderness or take him, you know, mountain biking, or we would go over to the MMA gym. We really tried to do everything we possibly could to, to kind of stem this tide that was already hitting us. <clears throat> so fast forward, he's um, 16 years old. He's now already been in one treatment and relapsed. And in our state, and, and he just admitted to, you know, using more drugs. And in our state, um, when you're 15 years old, you have to sign yourself in. Short of a civil commitment, you can't force even a child to um, go to treatment. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do here? Like, we can't force him to treatment. We can't ask him to leave our home. He's only 15, 16 years old. Um, he's, he's not listening to us. He's using problematically. I mean, I was at the point where I really felt like any minute I would go outside and my son would be on my front lawn dead. And he was one of those people that when he drank, he didn't have an off button. He just drank um, to blackout. And he, so he's 16 years old and he's drinking problematically and he's smoking marijuana and he's using pills. And I remember just at that point being so broken, 
so broken. I'm sure many of you parents watching this have felt that same way. Good Lord, what do I do? I have no idea. And I was completely, completely at the end of myself. Uh, you know, we were, we were just desperate, desperate to the point where we ultimately were involving criminal justice, um, the police, because we just didn't feel like we had any other option. And we felt like if we didn't do something, our son was not going to live through this. And so um, my son was in the criminal justice system for a couple of years. He was in juvenile drug court. And as soon as he graduated juvenile drug court, um, he started using again. And we, our home was complete chaos. We were so dysregulated. Um, there was so much yelling, control, manipulation on my part, um, on my husband's part. We were just a hot mess. And we sat in front of a trusted advisor one day. And I think at this point, my, my son was about 17. Um, and we had, we, we had asked him to leave for a bit because things were so chaotic in our home. Um, he wasn't even a senior in high school at that point, but we felt like for the sake of our other children, we didn't really have any other option. And we sat in front of him trying to, trying to figure out what to do and how to do this, you know, and our values, what I knew was that we were violating our values um, by being the way we were being like in our, in our mind, our, we were um, people of faith. We wanted to be people of love. We wanted to be people of peace. And we were in so much pain because literally every single day, we were violating the things that were most important to us. Were we being kind? Were we being compassionate? Were we being loving? Were we being gentle? Um, and I honestly, I can say, that none of those things were happening in our home at that point because we just didn't know what we didn't know. And I remember sitting in front of this man and he looked at us and he said to me and my husband, and I have it written on a piece of paper up in my bedroom in front of the mirror because I read it all the time in my original writing. And it said, are you going to be right for the sake of justice or are you going to love for the sake of relationship? Because love never fails. And we hear this a lot nowadays. Are you going to be right or are you going to love right? Because sometimes it doesn't serve us well to be right. Sometimes we just need to love right. And that hit my heart. I, I just remember the moment so clearly that he looked at us and he said, are you going to be right or are you going to love right? Because love never fails. And I realized at that moment that I had spent four years just trying to impose my will on my son and, and you know, proving that I had to be right, proving that he was wrong. And what happened in the process of that was not just the message that he was doing something bad, but that he actually was bad. And so we were adding to these layers of pain and shame on our son as a result of his substance use. 
And I think we were more worried about what the neighbors thought than we necessarily were about getting our son the help that he needed. And so as we were listening to that and as we were walking through this and, and um, you know, going through many multiple treatments and in and out of the house, I these three questions really came to me strongly that sort of helped me um, in my catalyst to change myself. And so the first question was, if my son got sober, would he want to have a relationship with me? Right? If my son got sober, would he want to have a relationship with me? Or would I just be one of those people that was so toxic and so unhealthy and so triggering for him that he would feel like he needed to stay away from me? And the second question was, and if my son got sober, would he want to have a relationship with the God that I believed in and said I represented? And that was almost even more important to me because my faith was one of the things that I valued so much. And I thought, how am I representing the God of my understanding? How am, if I say that I love and I believe in a loving God, am I loving you know, what am I, what does that look like? And then the third question I asked myself is if my son died tonight, or even if I died tonight, how would I feel looking back? What would that last text message look like? What would that last conversation be like? And this was really driven home as I started doing some of the work that I'm doing with a friend who truly had to face that ultimate loss. And um, she had learned to love well. And the last text she got from her son was one that she savors to this day. And I knew that I needed to change. I knew that this was what I wanted. I wanted to be able to say yes, yes, that my that I would be healthy enough for my son to want to have a relationship with me, that I would be loving enough so that I would be representing the God of my understanding well, and that I would never look back with regrets. And I was done. As I asked myself those questions and thought about my way of being with my son, I was done. And I know all of us have said that at one point, I'm done. But for me, done meant something entirely differently. So I was done, but not in the way that you would think I was done. So the first thing I was done doing was focusing on death statistics. You know, we hear in the news, we're bombarded with it every day. And especially if you're in the trenches with someone who has substance use disorder, we see the data, right? We see the statistics. 200 people a day die of an accidental or overdose and almost the same amount or more, almost 300 a day, die from alcohol-related deaths. 500 people a day die from the disease of addiction. However, what I learned was that there are 23 million people in recovery today. 
every single day, according to SAMHSA, about 4,000 people activate their recovery. And I started to learn from the recovery community that recovery is not only possible, that it's probable. The first thing I did was I took a peer recovery coaching training and I got plugged into the recovery community. And I, I can tell you as a family member, that was one of the most important things that I ever did. I, I mean, there, are, there is no greater hope that you can find than to um, be with people that are in recovery. And these are people that had stories like unimaginable stories, stories far worse than our family story, stories of, you know, years in prison, stories of, you know, 20 years homelessness and out on the streets, and now they're in recovery. And I really began to learn, I actually have um, two people in my life that are my recovery mentors. And I'm, they're two of my very dearest friends, like very best friends now. Um, I found my people when I found people in recovery. And maybe that's just because, you know, I had come from a family that was so impacted by substance use that, you know, I felt, I felt pretty broken myself, but I began to learn what recovery actually looked like and understood, you know, that there were um, different pathways to recovery and, and that um, recovery uh, can be different for every single person. But I found so much hope in the recovery community. I was done treating my son like he was bad rather than ill. And I began to learn about addiction from the perspective of behavioral science and neuro neuroscience. And I began to see my son as suffering, not as bad. Um, he, there is a reason behind, there was a reason behind his using. And I have to tell you that um, when we start putting moral judgments on people with substance use disorder, it drives shame and it drives um, trauma. And so I knew that if my, I, if my son was really going to get well, that I had to take that judgment out of it and understand it from the behavioral science perspective, right? So I began to learn that, you know, and especially with my son being so young, his prefrontal cortex had been totally hijacked. He, you know, well, he had some choices that he could make. Um, I believe that, you know, the substances for him were the solution, right? His behaviors made sense to him. And, um, that's um, one of the things that I had to do was stop taking the behaviors of the disease personally. This was not about me. He wasn't doing anything to me. He wasn't doing anything to, you know, you didn't wake up in the morning and go, okay, I think I'm just going to make my mom mad, right? I think I'm just going to steal from her today. I mean, no one wakes up one morning and thinks they're going to be addicted no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, today I'm going to, you know, leave my kids um, or today I'm going to not pay my bills because, um, you know, like I just want to make everybody around me mad. Like that, you know, we have to kind of dispel that idea that they're doing things to us. They're not doing anything to us you know, that his behaviors did make sense to them, that he was trying to survive, that his behaviors were the symptoms 
of the disease and they weren't about me, but also that he was using substances as the solution to the things that were inside of him that were causing him pain. So um, he'll tell me to this day that he never felt like he fit in. And, you know, he was, he was definitely one of those kids that was the challenging kid that was always naughty and getting in trouble. And now I realize that I sort of put that label on him and could I go back and do it over again? And so if you're listening to me and you have little kids, you know, take the labels out because I think it, it did do some damage. Right. And so, you know, we're in this really straight laced church community and, you know, all of our friends have these like seemingly perfect kids and my son's a naughty boy. And so he will say that when he used from the beginning, that then he felt normal. The only time he felt normal was when he was using. So, you know, the, the substances, if we think about it in terms of, you know, behaviors that make sense, which is part of um, invitation to change and the craft approach. And there's scientific data to back this up, right? That um, when I feel anxious, I can take a drink and I don't feel anxious anymore. When I feel pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, I can take a pill and all of a sudden everything's good. I don't feel sad anymore. I don't, my back doesn't hurt anymore. So when we think in terms of that, the substance is the solution for whatever it is, you know, <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> sorry, um, for whatever that is. And we start to see it as, you know, that, that they're just trying to survive, right? They're just trying to figure things out. They're just trying to get through life day in and day out in the best way that they know how to. And that it really, it was never about me. In fact, if you talk to someone in recovery, they're like, we didn't even think, we didn't even think about our family. And maybe that's what hurts so bad sometimes as you think, but I raised them. I loved them. I remember hearing a story of a friend of mine and, and uh, she had a son who, and they're both in recovery now, amazing family, but her son had a really, was born with a really, really rare disease and he was allergic to food. And so for the first 13 years of his life until he outgrew this disease, she nursed him every single day like she put her life on hold they had 24-hour help um he had to kind of live in a bubble he couldn't eat anything um that wasn't specially created for him and so when he started using substances at a pretty young age now for him he'll say you know he didn't feel normal and that the substances were you know the solution for the pain that he felt but for her, it felt really personal. It felt like I had nursed this child for the first 13 or 14 years of his life. I had given up everything and now he's doing this to me. And it really took a lot of family work for them to get through that trauma of that it felt so personal. And so she had to do her own you know, healing and her own work because her whole family had experienced trauma. And then on top of that, she lost her husband. And so there was just a lot going on in that family. And her son 
was trying to deal with his pain in the best way that he knew how to do that. And so I think when we start to realize that their behaviors make sense, they're not doing this to us. We have to, I know, I know um, in a lot of programs, they talk about separating the person from the disease and understanding that the addiction is the enemy, not your person. And so if we think in terms of, you know, who we're fighting against, we're, we're, if we're going to fight against anything, if we're going to be mad at anything, be mad at the addiction, but don't be mad at your person. <laughs> because truly, truly, you know, they didn't wake up any morning and say, I'm, I'm going to become addicted today. Um, I was done believing the lie that I was powerless. Now, you know, this can evoke some um, visceral reactions and it can be controversial to say, I, um, I'm not powerless, right? Um, because in certain recovery modalities, we're told that we are, we are powerless. And I do believe that on some level, we are powerless you know, against other people's behaviors. And, you know, we might be powerless when it comes to changing um, the, the addiction, but we're not powerless. Like I took my power back. And I remember just sort of thinking, you know, I don't know if this is going to really age me, but there was a, um, there was a show, a movie with Michael Keaton years ago called Mr. Mom. And he had lost his job and he just had this victim mentality. So he was moping around the house. The house was a mess, gaining weight, feeling sorry for himself. And, you know, one morning he looked at his daughter and he was like, who am I? I don't even recognize who I am. And so he basically took off his victim cape and put on his, you know, superpower cape and realized that he did have control and power over his attitudes, over his actions. And so this is how it was for me where I was like, no, I am not going to be a victim anymore to this addiction. Like I get to choose. I get to choose to not allow the addiction to run and ruin my life. And I was not powerless. And so I began to take actions in ways that I believe would be most helpful for our family. So there were some things that, and I talk about, we do some workshops and um, we talk about our superpowers, right? And we have superpowers. One of the things that I learned was, well, I couldn't make anyone change I could adopt what's called change talk. And so for some of you who are watching this, you might be familiar with motivational interviewing. But what I learned was that I could ask open-ended questions in a way that would get someone else thinking about what they wanted or what they needed. I could respond, even though I didn't have the power to change the way someone else's behavior was towards me, I can respond in a way that honored the intrinsic value of my person. And so that was really important to me. I did a lot of work with the homeless 
early on in my journey. And I realized that, you know, people are just people and they just want to be seen and they want to be heard and they want to be validated and they want to be loved and touched. And um, so I understood that I could make choices in this situation that actually really could impact, you know, the outcome in my family. And, and by outcome, I mean, we don't, we can't control outcomes and that was never my motive, but it definitely, I could influence what was going on around me. And maybe that's a better way to put it. Like if I was in chaos or I was dysregulated or I was in a place of anger or overreaction, then I, um, you know, people would pick up on that, right? One of the things that I did in this was began to look at my patterns and my behaviors. And so, you know, I know that my dad had trauma. He had severe childhood trauma. His responses to the trauma in his life were to act out in control and anger. And so that behavior was passed on to me. So when my son would act out, that's what I knew. I would respond in control and anger. If he got loud, I got louder. And we would go back and forth and it just created so much chaos. And I knew that if I was going to make a difference in my family, that I had to change those patterns. I had to think about the way I was behaving. And I could take my power back by choosing to respond and react in ways that modeled recovery. And I think that we can reflect healthy behaviors. Um, one of the things that I do when I work with families is we pull out the eight dimensions of wellness. And I think some of you probably are familiar with that. There's a, a evaluation that you can take that's online. I think it's on JD Powers web, Flowers website. Um, but we can look at like how, what areas in my life are way out of whack and way out of balance. Um, so if I look at the eight dimensions of wellness and uh, my financial wellness is really super low because maybe I'm helping my person financially and I can't really afford it, then I can look at that and I can say, this is an area for me and my recovery that I can take power over. And so we do have the power to control our responses, our reactions, our decisions, our own recovery, our own wellness, especially right now during this time of COVID. You know, there's so many families that COVID, COVID doesn't cause the, the cracks as much as it reveals them. I mean, I think it has caused some cracks, but I think more than anything, it just brings everything to the surface, right? So like, you know, it exposes us and it exposes our areas in our life that are weak and that we struggle in. And so we really um, have an opportunity, I think, in the middle of all of this COVID 
to take a look at where are the cracks in my own life? What are the things that I need to be changing so that I can be a healthier human being? I was done instigating, confronting, controlling, and micromanaging. And I began to realize that I played a part in the chaos in my family. I began to work hard looking at my own family patterns that I needed to change in my life. And um, kind of just going back to what I was uh, talking about earlier, um, <clears throat> we, our behaviors make sense in the disease of addiction as well. Right. So like when we talk about someone's addiction, we can't talk about it without understanding the role of dopamine and the dopamine release that happens when someone uses. And, and when they get dopamine from an event or from something significant, um, they, we get we grow in an increased tolerance to this dopamine. Right. And so what happens is in family members, we have the same thing. Our way we get the dopamine rush is just different, um, but it can be just as unhealthy, right? So we might, you know, someone might um, get mad at us. Let's just say your person is really upset and they start yelling at you and you yell back. Um, I was just watching uh don't judge me, but I was watching an episode of um, Intervention the other day. And I saw this so clearly in this family, right? Where the girl who was using substances was creating all this drama and the family just got sucked right into all the drama and they were all just running around like acquiescing to her and micromanaging and trying to control her. And, you know, it was just... Um, it was kind of a crazy making thing. And I looked at this and I was like, they are as addicted to the dopamine rush that they get trying to control and manipulate and micromanage their person or acquiesce to their person. I mean, this mother was actually driving her daughter to go get substances because she was so afraid that her daughter was gonna die. Um, which was her dopamine hit, right? So she was getting that um, from her behaviors. And so our behaviors make sense to us as family members. And we have to understand that even when they're negative. So when we think of like reinforcing behaviors, um, when, when someone uses substances and they get a dopamine hit, it reinforces that behavior. And so when we uh, pick up the rope and we get caught up in the middle of the chaos and we um, try to control or manipulate or yell or anything like that, we're like, we're getting that same dopamine hit. And so even though it's negative, it's working for us. Um, I use the comp comparison of um, our diets and sugar, right? So we might know that eating a piece of chocolate cake is really bad for us, but it feels so good when we do it, that we do it anyway, despite the negative consequences. And so as a family member, we might be experiencing all of these negative consequences and we may have just as hard of a time stepping out of those behaviors and stopping them. 
And so I had to dig into the why, right? Some of it was just learned patterns, learned patterns in my family, like I mentioned earlier. Um, some of it was just this false sense of like, that I could, um, it was better to do something than nothing, even if the something was totally wrong. And now I've learned that, um, and this is part of the craft approach and invitation to change, which says you're either neutral or positive, but you're never negative. We can allow for natural consequences without being the bad guy and without getting involved in the drama and the chaos. And so I actually, went through, we did DBT therapy as a family, and I highly recommend it. I've told so many people um, that DBT saved our family. And we were referred to it because our youngest daughter, who at the time of my son's addiction was just really young, like 10, 11, 12, um, started self-harming. And so we had, we, you know, we went to our, um, school and they recommended this DBT, DBT dialectical behavioral therapy and um, we were we were referred to go together as a family and it really changed us it really changed our lives we learned how to manage our distress and how to come up with other coping mechanisms how to I learned how to pause I learned how to practice the pause and the idea of like radical acceptance which isn't, isn't just accepting all the behaviors around you. What it means is I'm gonna be present in the moment. I'm not gonna create a story in my head that's gonna to contribute to the chaos. So we, um, one of the books I read early on was called The Anatomy of Peace. And um, he talks about the boxes, right? How we put people in boxes and label the boxes. And so this is what happens in addiction is and you guys have all probably been there, but you know, your person's at, um, at home and they decide they're gonna go out to the garage and have a cigarette. And so we create a story in our head. Oh my gosh, they're probably not going out to have a cigarette. They're probably going out to smoke who knows what. And so they're out there and we're inside fuming and we've created this whole big story around what they're doing in that garage. And then they come back in and we're looking at their eyes and checking to see if they're dilated and smelling them and, you know, like micro managing their behavior or, you know, they're like, they're living in this fishbowl and we're creating this environment where, you know, no one would even want to live in that environment, right? And so we've already created this story. And there's a, there's a quote that I love about um, how we do this, you know, and it's, and it's really relevant for our time right now. Um, and it, and it says, you know, first, we create the story in our head, like first, we start to think a certain way. And then we look for evidence to validate our story, right, which is confirmation bias. It's a buzzword right now where we have our own story based on who we are, what our experiences are. And so we look for evidence to confirm our story. And then what we do is we solicit other people on our side of the story, right? So I'm like, honey, 
I'm checking out with my husband. Honey, did you see that? Did you see what he did? Don't you think he, he was acting really weird? And so I'm, you know, I'm like building my, um, building my army, right? For my side of the war. And then the last thing we do is we take away their names. And I'm going to talk about stigma in a little bit, but this is something that we do. Oh, he's just an addict. Oh, he's just a junkie, you know? So we create this story, we collect evidence, we take away their names. And so what I knew was that my thinking was so off in all of this about what addiction is and about what it meant in our family, about who my son really was, and I had to start to change. Um, I was done being mean, unkind, nasty, and perpetuating the old way of tough love. Now, we had gotten all kinds of advice. And in fact, my son was in the top treatment center in Minnesota, um, which is a 12-step Minnesota model program. And, you know, everything we heard was, well, you have to do tough love, whatever this tough love was, you know. Um, and what I learned is that I could love well. And what loving well means to me is that I can treat my son like a human being. He's still a person. Your person is still a person. That person on the street using substances that lives in the tent city is still a human being. And we care sometimes more for our animals than we do for our people. And yes, we need to set boundaries, right? And I had to learn how to set boundaries. And, and, and what that looked like for me was, you know, meaning what I said without being mean, right? We say what, I, we, say what we mean without being mean. And it was up to me to hold to my boundaries. But when I learned to do that, and do it in love for my own well-being, not to um, add punitive consequences, not to produce a certain outcome, not to manipulate him, but to be able to keep myself healthy so I could love well. And I, I share this a lot because a lot of people think, oh, loving well is probably just letting them do anything. Or maybe that means I can't ever, you know, kick them out or ask them to leave. I hate using the word kick them out. I just think it's so de dehumanizing. But we did, we gave our son a choice um, towards the end of his time living with us because I knew that I couldn't stay in my place of peace and I couldn't stay in my boundaries if he was bringing substances into our home and we had a minor child in the home. So I, we did set a boundary, but we did give him a choice. We were like, you can choose. And how we framed that at that point in time was to say, we cannot change you. We can't make you do anything. You can choose. And if you want to choose to, to use, you know, we were, you can do that. Um, what we support is for you to go to treatment. Um, but if you choose to continue to use, then you won't be able to live in our home. Now, we didn't grab him by the shirt collar and we didn't boot him out. 
We didn't bag up his clothes and put him on the street. Um, he did have a place to go. And, you know, even in that, we actually uh, would pick him up and take him to get his hair cut. We'd take him out to lunch. We drove him to work when he didn't have a car. Um, so we really just stopped with the punitive mindset. Like, I think that we think that people who are in active addiction need to be punished. Like, the only way they're going to change is if we punish them. And we have this, you know, the criminal justice system has the most, you know, it's just horrible. And I know that we're moving more towards restorative, helpful um, systems within the criminal justice system, but um, it's still very, very consequential, very punitive. And so we're putting sick people in jail and prison, and what they really need is help, not punishment. Um, I was done propagating terms like detachment and disconnection and letting go and letting God. And I began to understand that healing happens in community and that connection is the opposite of addiction. And it, um, the data proves this out, which is that when families are involved and they activate their own recovery and they activate their own healing, that in 65% of cases, people ultimately end up getting the help that they need. Um, as opposed to some other modalities that are in the, you know, Al-Anon, it's like 19%. Um, Johnson Intervention, it's 45%. But for craft and invitation to change and for, you know, kind of taking this idea of um, empathy and compassion and walking with your person, 65% of people ultimately activate recovery. And when families are involved of those people after one year, 81% are still in recovery, according to ARISE, um, their ARISE intervention. So I, I, the idea that um, there's, if you, uh, if you go to a meeting or you call a treatment center and they're telling you that you can't have contact with your loved one and that the only way your loved one is going to get well is if they detach from you or that the only way you're going to get well is if you detach from them, I would find a different treatment center. Like I would go find a different, um, you know, recovery place to help you. Because if families are not involved in the healing process, it's like taking something like a healthy um, plant and putting it back in a pond that is unhealthy and that's not gonna work. So we need to think in terms of how can we help families become healthy, you know, conversely, like if the families have activated their recovery, you know, so 65% of the time, eventually the person ends up in recovery anyway or you know, in addition. And so we can really lead the way with recovery. Um, but, it, but it happens in community and I get to, I have the honor of hearing story after story after story of family members who change, who learn to love well. And as a result of that, their person 
is now in recovery. Um, and they didn't detach and they didn't disconnect. And Johan Hari has a great book. Um, I'm trying to think of it. It's not Chasing the Scream, it's this other one. And he talks about this, how like the studies that they did with animals and with people, when they healed the best was when they were in community. And I knew I wanted to be part of that community. I wanted to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I was done demanding that his recovery look a certain way and be measured by my timeline. And I think the word I use for this is harm reduction for the family. Um, I, you know, we can, we can want something. And I remember early on, my son was um, court ordered to treatment and I thought, okay, we're gonna get him into the teen challenge program uh, for boys and he's gonna do the long-term program and it's gonna be nine months and he's gonna come out with, you know, the All-American, um, looking like the All-American boy. And the truth is it ended up being so damaging because he had no interest in, in being there. And, you know, we, we might have our own ideas about what might work and what won't work, but I can tell you that what will work is what they want. And they have to have the power of agency in their decisions. And we have to help them understand self-efficacy that, you know, they, they oftentimes do know what they want. Um, but we can meet them where they're at. We can support them with small changes. I think we have this notion in our society that recovery is all or nothing, that you have to be 100% sober or, or you're in active addiction. Um, our recovery was ultimately um, different than that. My son is on Tamoxone and it saved his life. And actually, as part of this story um, and the beginning slide, the first thing I did when he reached out to me was said, I, you know, are, are you open to going to a Suboxone clinic and getting on Suboxone? Um, because I knew that he had been struggling with opiates for a long time. And so it might not look the way that you think it should look. It might not be the way that you've been told, but um, it can be good. It can be good and we can let them decide. I have a girlfriend, my recovery mentor I mentioned earlier. She's like, you know, I would go to 12 step meetings and it was like wearing a scratchy sweater that didn't fit. And then the last time I went to treatment, I discovered for myself what my recovery should look like. And I spent two years baking pies and doing yoga. And yoga was her community and baking pies was her purpose. And so when we think in terms of like the four pillars of recovery, home, we need safe and stable housing, health, we need proper health care, we need mental health services, um, we need to keep our physical health in, you know, in balance, um, community, community is a huge part of recovery, healing happens in circles, and then of course purpose. So that's our recovery as well, right? If our only purpose is to save our person, we are not going to get well. And so um, find a purpose, find something to do outside of 
micromanaging your person. I was done wasting precious moments that I may never get back. And I learned to be present and to be in the moment because I knew even though I was focusing on recovery, I still knew in my heart that death could be a part of the, the outcome of this disease. And so I tell this story, which happened the day before he sent me that text. And I had gone to Arizona. I knew he was in a relapse or reoccurrence of use. And um, I went out there anyway, because I just wanted to check on him and we had planned to go to Sedona. And so the last day before I had to leave, um, I picked him up, my daughter was with, and we went and spent the day in Sedona. And I, I honestly remember like creating a mantra in my head that was like, I'm not gonna call him out. I'm not gonna say anything to him. I was literally praying, like help me to not get upset. I mean, he was nodding off in the back of the car. He was taking too long in the bathroom. I knew he was using and I did not say anything. I just thought I am gonna be in the moment. And in fact, I remember pulling out my camera and taking extra pictures because I really did think to myself, this could be the last day I have with him. And how do I want it to be? How do I wanna remember this last day? And so even though I knew he was using, even though it was hard, um, and there were moments where I could have totally, you know, gone off the rails, I stayed present, I stayed calm, and I stayed in the moment. And so this is what happened. I'm at the airport the next day. This is that night. So that night, um, I, I dropped him off at the hotel and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Giving him a hug, knowing I had to get on a plane um, and fly, you know, 1500 miles back to my house, leaving him where he was at, knowing that he was using. But I got this message at the end of the day, which made it all worthwhile. I love you tons, mother. I always hate to see you go after a good visit. Love you more, Jake. I hate to go too. Jake, the greatest gift I can give you is my prayers. That is the one, one of the ways I show love. You can receive that however you want, but know that I am praying for you many times a day. I believe in you. And the next day, I'm sitting at the airport five minutes before I board my plane, and I got the text from Jake saying that he needed help. And I know that I know in my heart that had I confronted him the day before, had I made a big deal out of his using, had I gotten all upset, had I called him out, we would not have been a safe place for him to come and get the help that he needed. And it was more important for me to love well. It was more important for me to love right on that day than it was for me to be right. Because he already knew I didn't have to tell him. So the end of this story, and I'm super grateful that it does have an amazing ending. This is me and my son um, in September. He's 21 months in recovery. He lives out in Colorado. 
He has a job. He has a girlfriend. He has his own apartment. And um, probably one of the highlights of my life was that um, in September of this year, I went out, I think it was early October, and we climbed my first 14er. One of the things he does for his recovery is mountain climb. And he did 13 summits this year, 14ers, and that's what he does when he's off work on his days off. And so I had the honor and the privilege to um, climb my first summit my son, um, and this is recovery, right? This is recovery. I've worked my recovery hard. He's worked his recovery. Um, and we get to enjoy these precious moments because of recovery. So at the end of the day, we all get to choose and we can't control what someone else chooses, but we certainly can choose life. We certainly can choose our own recovery. And so I hope, I hope today that something I said inspired you that you'll watch this and you'll activate your recovery as a family member. Um, if you need any help or any support or any guidance, I have tons of free resources. Please feel free to reach out to me. I'm Pam Jones Lanhart on Facebook. We have a private Facebook group called Thrive Family Addiction Support. It's a group that supports harm reduction. Um, it supports multiple pathways to recovery. Um, we help families uh, activate their own recovery. So my hope, my hope and my prayer for you tonight is that if you are struggling and you are suffering in your loved one's addiction, that you understand that you can choose recovery, that you can choose life. And that's what I have for you tonight. Thank you again for inviting me on. Thank you for allowing me to share my story, my journey. And um, you can always reach out to um, Serenity House as well and, and they can assist you. So um, thanks again. I appreciate you all. Welcome everyone to the Serenity House of Flint's podcast. My name is Tara Marina Wallen. I'm the founding director of the organization. I have been on this healing path for almost eight years now, and all of the things that we offer at Serenity House are whole person centered so that you can heal from addiction, codependency, and trauma. The Serenity House of Flint is a recovery community organization with our mission to advocate for people in recovery and to provide holistic options for those recovering from substance use disorder, codependency, and trauma. This podcast will provide you with content surrounding advocacy and holistic healing options. Some of the programs that you're going to experience will be around using words to heal and education on natural approaches to healing. 
I want to thank everyone for joining us, and I'm so excited for what's to come. If you feel called to find out more about our organization, please visit www.flintserenityhouse.org. If you feel called to give, you can find our donation button on our website. Thank you and enjoy the podcast.